Hello and welcome to the Slingshot Group podcast, where our co-hosts bring keen insight to some of the most pressing issues facing nonprofit and church leaders today. Each episode features an in-depth interview with thought leaders, ministry practitioners, executives and artists who draw from their wealth of experiences to share valuable insights and lessons learned from the journey. And now, let's join our hosts for today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slingshot Group podcast. I'm Keith Robinson, and this is our second episode of the fourth season. And I just want to start off by saying thank you for listening and for sharing. Seriously, thank you. On behalf of my fellow co-hosts and teammates, David Miller, Vance Martin, and our newest partner in this endeavor, our very own Brian Taylor, We are so glad that you've shown up today. Well, today we are diving right into one of the most important and hot button topics of the day. We're talking about race, racism, and what implications the gospel has on this very issue. David sits down for a moving, raw, and candid conversation with John Williams, who serves as the Director of Racial Reconciliation at Fellowship Church in Monrovia, California a gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, intergenerational church. And I cannot wait for you to listen in on this conversation. So let's go ahead and dive in now. Hey, and welcome to the Slingshot Group podcast. The conversation around racial reconciliation is in no way a new one, but there's something unique and beautiful that is happening with this conversation has been propelled to the forefront of culture. And, and, and I think that it's important for ministry leaders to understand what it's all about and to honestly wrestle with how we can respond in our context. My name is David Miller, and I'm kicking off this episode with a conversation with my friend, John Williams. John is the director at the Fellowship Center for Racial Reconciliation. John, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks, David. I really appreciate you inviting me, and we're going to be talking about my favorite topic, racial reconciliation. So looking forward to the conversation. So good. So good. John, um, I would love to to start with you. Uh, Give us a little bit of your story. You know, what... What got you involved in this work? Sure. Um, So I've been uh, involved in racial reconciliation for 30 plus years. Uh, In fact, I moved out to Southern California to work with uh, a leader that many of your listeners may know, Dr. John Perkins. And uh, back in the 80s, Dr. Perkins started the Harambe Christian uh, Family Center and I came on staff in 1986 as the director for Kids Ministries. But part of the work that we were doing is on racial reconciliation. So I have been doing this stuff for a long time. Yeah, and working, working with giants. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I wonder, John, if the, if the best place to start for us is to unpack those two words, racial reconciliation, help us to kind of wrap our minds around what do we mean when we say that? Sure. Um, There are many definitions that are floating out uh, on social media, and a lot of different people believe that racial reconciliation, it means a lot of different things for a lot of different people. For me, I try to anchor it in scripture. uh, In uh, 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul tells us that all of us have the ministry of reconciliation. And so 
for me, part of that ministry is being reconciled racially. We understand that we can be reconciled um, through family conflicts, through uh, governmental conflicts. But for me, another component of that reconciliation is being racially reconciled. Mm -hmm. And so for me, when I say racial reconciliation, what that means for me is reconciliation is an ongoing spiritual process that involves forgiveness, that involves repentance, and that involves justice that restores broken relationships and systems to reflect God's original intention for all creation to flourish. And that particular definition comes from my good friend, uh, Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil. Okay. That's so good. So good. It's interesting, you know, as we talk about, you know, the work that you're doing, the conversation that's happening. I mean, uh, in a way it feels like a no brainer, right? Like, like, like I, I cannot tell you about a conversation I've recently had where someone has said, no, no, we don't need that. Or, or, you know, equality, that doesn't matter. Like, like no one that I've talked to, I'm sure there are people out there and, but no one I've talked to has had that mentality. And yet there is inequality happening in our culture today. And right. you, through your work, you've worked with hundreds of people and walking them through this. Talk with us for a minute about some of the barriers that you've seen that are, that are really um, hindering breakthrough from taking place. I, uh, David, I think the biggest barrier is language itself, is how we define things. Okay. And so what reconciliation means for one person may mean something different for another person. What racism means for one person they mean something different for another person. And so if, if, if there was a way that we could come up with common language, especially as believers, um, if we could come up with common language, then that would help with this barrier of, well, what does racial reconciliation mean? What does racism mean? Mm-hmm. What is my personal responsibility in um, alleviating racism? Uh, what, is, what is the collective group's responsibility and helping to alleviate racism. Um, and, and when I say racism, I also mean in alleviating injustice, because you talked a little bit about there, there still are inequities or disparities. And so for us to come with common language and say race means this, racism means that, reconciliation means this, hmm. if there's a way that we could come together, I think it would help uh, in a great way, and um, in Christians in particular, and being able to have these conversations of race and reconciliation. Wow. So can you give us a little bit of that language so that we are, you know, I, I mean, I love that the idea of, of, you know, we have to, we have to have common language. We have to mean the same thing when we say these phrases or these words. And so you talk a little bit about um, the definitions of racism of, you know, I mean, give us some of those core definitions that we can, that we can be, um, kind of jumping off of in this conversation? Sure, sure. For me, racism is like a two-headed monster. And so the one head is individual racism. That's, that's I don't like you, David, because I'm black and you're white, or you don't like me because you're white and I'm black. Um, and it's based solely on our skin color. Hmm. Um, and so that's, that's that individual racism where um, all of us have experienced racial prejudice. And so someone has not liked me because I am black. I have not liked people when I was younger because they were white. And so that's 
one head of this two-headed monster. That's the individual component. But there's also a systemic component to this where there's racial prejudice plus the misuse of power by systems and institutions. And so if we look historically, that could be um, racism in housing. It could be racism in education where we had segregated schools uh, during prior to the 60s. And even going forward, we still have some, some segregated schools. Right. And so, so you have that systemic racism, which is um, us as Christians and others to collectively try to address uh, through laws, through behavior, through practices uh, collectively. And then you have that individual racism, which each of us needs to work on, obviously, um, uh, for us to be closer to the Lord and, and, and to have better relationships uh, between one another. And so for me, that's the two-headed monster, the individual racism and the systemic racism. Yeah. And it's interesting because I feel like when I, I you know, going back to these um, real, but in this case, you know, fictitious conversations as we clump them all together, um, I, I, again, have very rarely had a conversation with someone who would identify themselves as a racist, right? Nor who would identify um, most of the systems that they're a part of as, as some sort of, uh, um, as not being equal or any of those things. And so when, when, when I hear the, the idea and the term of systemic racism, I think mm -hmm. that's something that our audience has to be able to wrap their minds around in a different way because, uh, and you can obviously, please correct me on this, mm -hmm. it's not necessarily something that is, that is overt. It, right. it, it is something that, that we have become accustomed to Right. And oftentimes, um, it's it, you know for for someone like myself who is who is white um, and male, um, it can be something that not only have I become accustomed to, but I have benefited from. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of that changing in some way makes can make us unnerved. Talk to us for a second about uh, you know what would you say to that person that that again they're hearing it and they're saying that's not me. That's not the system that I'm a part of. How do, we, how do we help to kind of remove the scales a little bit from our eyes and understand a little more of what's actually happening um, within our systems that would kind of lead to that term that we're hearing so often right now, systemic racism? Right, I, I, I like to, to, to describe systemic racism as a shapeshifter. Mm. In other words, the way that systemic racism manifested in the 1700s and 1800s during slavery um, was very overt. It was in your face, yeah. um, and and so, but it shifted. So you had um, the abolition of slavery, and then after the abolition of slavery in 1863 to 1865, then you had what's called the Jim Crow era, and then so racism manifested in a different way, where there were institutions that directly said, based on law, that we can have separate but equal. Um, institutions. So we can have a school district that is okay if all white kids go to one school district and all kids of color go to a different school district, as long as it's equal. Well, the reality was, is that they were separate, but financially they were never equal. In terms of the quality of, of books and supplies, they weren't equal. And so you go from, from slavery to the Jim Crow era to the civil rights era. And so you had starting uh, really, the civil rights era started right after World War II, where a lot of African-American men who were soldiers and who were fighting for freedom in this country came back home and said, hey, wait a minute, things aren't fair and, and, and just here in our country. 
And so people started to rally around saying, we need to change these laws. And so you move from the mid 40s going to the 1960s, where you have some laws that are being changed, uh, which we call the Civil Rights Act in housing and employment and education. And so it shifts again to, okay, we have laws that are fair on their face, but in their application, they're still unfair. And so, and so, but because there was such a big movement in the 60s where there's so many laws that were like, really like moving boulders from one place to another and said, this is wrong. And collectively, we generally believe that that was so, and we moved it to another space. Then it became harder because a lot of people said, okay, we fix race in this country and we're okay. And yeah. so, um, and then, but if you look at statistics and look at the disparities between blacks and whites, or look at the disparities between uh, the Latinx community, Hispanics and Latinos and whites, and you see those disparities still going on, a lot of those disparities are the result of what happened all those years during Jim Crow, um, and even after Jim Crow, where we still wouldn't, we weren't applying laws fairly um, and equally upon uh, everyone. And yeah. so what a lot of people don't understand is right after the civil rights, like let's say the Voting Rights Act in 1965, almost immediately there, were, there was a large contingent of people who were fighting still against the Voting Rights Act. There are a large contingent of states and counties that were saying, yeah, we know that on the books you can vote, but now you, we still aren't going to allow you to vote. And mm -hmm. so, like I said, so that racism is shape-shifting. So we don't have slavery, we don't have Jim Crow, but we still have the way that we're applying these laws in a way that still are being detrimental to certain communities and populations. Yeah, man, that's huge. That's huge. I've, I'd wonder if you would resonate with, with this or how you would, how you would turn um, kind of this understanding. I've, I've heard it even described uh, as far as systemic racism, the lens of, of a head start. And so, yes. you know, there's this idea that, at, that, that white families are able to have generational wealth based on all of the different things that have happened within history because the laws were not against them. And so even though there are laws that are, um, you know, if you could see me now, I'd be, I'm using air quotes, that, are, that there, there are laws that are equal, and yet we're not starting from the same starting blocks. We're not starting from the same line. Um, and so there's still this inequality that we're in the middle of trying to figure out um, around education, around land ownership, around um, so many of the, the really things that are the fundamentals of you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or, or the fundamentals of, of, of what we would call kind of this American dream. Um, and so it's important, I think, to understand uh, that difference, that between racism and systemic racism, um, I think that, that, you know, again, you talk about language, what, what, a, what an important distinction. That's yeah. yeah, yeah, that's no, that's a, that's, a, that's a great way of, of framing it, David. I, I agree exactly with what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, our audience is mainly made up of ministry leaders. I mean, these are, these are people with influence. These are people with platform that are, that are often listening to this podcast. And I, I'm curious, John, if you have examples of how ministry leaders, um, you know, kind of how you've seen ministry leaders using their platform well in the midst of all of this. 
Yeah, there, there are quite a few churches that have been doing a great job. I'm going to talk about my church first and then, and then some other churches. One of, the things, one of the things that we did and um, uh, really, right, so we had the pandemic come and then there's a shelter in place. And then, and then and we're all focused on that. Um, and then all of a sudden, we see this string of three incidences that were racially uh, motivated. So we had Ahmaud Aubrey and, and that murder. And then we had Breonna Taylor. And while there is no footage of it, there was the, um, the reporting of it. And then we had the George Floyd um, uh, murder. And so we had these three murders almost within a two-week period. Yeah. And we're all home and we're tired of watching the Tiger King. And we, you know, <laughs> and, so, and so all of a sudden, I think as a nation, we started to say, wait a minute, there might be an issue here. And so, um, so what we did was uh, shortly after the Ahmaud Aubrey, um, uh, you know, murder came and became known to everybody, our lead pastor, Albert Tate, started, he was already doing these kind of morning devotionals on Facebook Live and on Instagram Live. And so, but he started a series of talks about just being really candid about his own personal experience with, with racism as someone who grew up in Mississippi and then came to California and his experiences in Mississippi and in California. Um, and then we had started a series of webinars on uh, COVID-19 injustice and, and a lot of that surrounded um, around race. Uh, so that those are some things that we did, but there's some other churches, the Christian Reformed Church, I can't think of the name of it, but it was up in, um, in Michigan, uh, a number of their pastors just started talking about it on Sunday mornings and, mm. and, and preaching on it, but not just preaching on it, they actually had conversation around it. And so, so, they, so they did the sermon and then they had a Q&A time. Uh, there's some other churches um, in Seattle and some other places that had people like me and others who came on not just to preach, but to actually have an actual conversation, kind of a one-on-one a, a -on -one interview between the lead pastor and myself or, or some other folks who are versed uh, biblically as well as socially on these issues. And so mm -hmm. there have been a number of churches that have um, done those kinds of things. A lot of churches, once the, uh, the protest uh, began, a number of churches and just Christian organizations started creating their own marches and own protests mm. and vigils all across the country um, for not only awareness, but just kind of solidarity and saying that kind of overt racism we're not going to stand for. And so, um, so I completely agree with you, David, that, that, that pastors and church leaders have a lot of influence and um, can continue to influence folks uh, in a wide variety of ways. And I'd say the last example, there've been a number of churches who've done book clubs and who've, mm. looked, who've read like uh, Michael Emerson's book, Divided by Faith, um, and some other Christian writers who are talking about race. They've, they've started some book clubs um, just to have some conversations around there. So there've been a lot of great, um, great movements uh, in the direction of trying to get better understanding and both biblically and just understanding society uh, that have happened, that's happened around the country. Yeah, I love that. I, I'm curious, um, at, you know, I'm sure you've seen, you know, you just talked about some of the ways you've seen, you know, churches use their platform well. I, I'm curious about ways that maybe, um, 
you've seen churches not use their platform well in the midst of all of this. And, you know, whether that is overt silence or whether that is, um, you know, I, you know I, I can think of instances of people that are, that are trying to add their voice to the conversation and maybe the tone's not quite right or the information's not quite accurate or, you know, whatever that looks like. Um, and, and I think, and I, I want the answer to this question, but to continue to preface for a minute, I think that is some of the tension that leaders are feeling um, is, is I want to contribute. I want to be a part of this, but I'm afraid that I'll do it wrong. Um, and so, so talk to us about maybe again, some examples of maybe how it could be done wrong and then help to kind of put some of that fear aside so that more of us can step into the conversation. Yeah, I, th there definitely have been uh, instances where, where, from my perspective, people have done things wrong. Church leaders have done things wrong. I think the biggest one is, is just silence, is almost being tone deaf, um, where all of these, these racial instances are happening and you're not saying anything at all over the pulpit. Um, you're not trying to both publicly or privately say, hey, let me talk to someone who may know a little bit more about this and let me get educated a little bit more or let me invite someone into my church who, who is more well-versed to, to speak to my congregation. And so yeah. the biggest one I think is silence. And then after mm -hmm. that, I think the next biggest one is where, and, and I think you're kind of, you're, you're, you're getting to it where some people I would say are being more performative than actually sincere. And so, yeah. so, so one of the things that I noticed um, on social media in particular is all of a sudden there are all these folks making declarations that I'm not racist and this is horrible. Hmm. Great. You know, and then it stopped there, you know, and, yeah. and they didn't do anything else or they may have started and posted something a few days in a row and then nothing. And then it was almost hmm. like business as usual. Okay. I made my, I, I made my declaration. I said something publicly. I can check that box and then we can move on to the next, the next issue. Well, from my vantage point, this issue of race is going to constantly come back around. Yeah. And it's just like, to me, it's just like any other bad habit that we have. I know in my own life that if there's things in my life that I'm struggling with, if I don't deal with it head on, and if I don't deal with it in a consistent, prolonged amount of time, that at some point it's just going to come back. It might manifest differently. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, I, I feel like if we're constantly just being quiet about this and thinking that it's just going to go away or it's just a social issue and it doesn't have anything to do with the gospel, mm -hmm. well, it does have to do with the gospel because it's a part of our discipleship. I mean, we're to be discipled in every single area of our life and we mm -hmm. can't be discipled in how to be a strong male leader or a strong female leader or be discipled in how to be a great parent or a great spouse and not talk about, this issue that just keeps bubbling up and it's almost like the ocean where you have the high tide and the low tide. It goes back and we're okay. And it's like, okay, we don't have to deal with it. And it comes right back to high tide. And it's like, yeah. oh man, we got to deal with this again. Yeah. So for me, it's like, let's be prepared. Let's, mm -hmm. let's, what are some of the biblical principles in addressing race? Well, one of them is the biblical um, uh, discipling or, or discipline of lament. And so it's like, I don't know what to do. 
so if you're a church leader and you don't know what to do, the one thing you know you can do, the one thing that Jeremiah, David, Isaiah, uh, all taught us to do is to lament. So it's like, Lord, we don't know what to do. We know this is a problem. We feel, we feel bad about this. We're, we feel guilt. We feel shame. We feel anger. All those emotions help us to understand, Lord. And so all of us can lament. And, and, and it's all the way through scripture where God has called for his people to lament lamentable things. And mm-hmm. so that's something that churches can do, even though they're trying to be silent. This is something they can do where it takes it if they feel like this is political. Lamenting is not political. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's just literally crying out to God. I don't know what to do. I'm for the police. I'm for black people. I'm for people of color. I'm against racism. I don't know how to solve any of it. Well, let's pray and let's lament. So, mm. so, so I think that's one thing um, that we can do, that people and leaders who feel like, I don't really know what to do, that's a great place to start. For us at the Center for Racial Reconciliation, um, which is a part of our ministry in our church, that's how we started, literally four years ago today. It was, mm-hmm. it was August 28th, uh, 2016. We had a night of lament. And we just said, we want you to come. There's not going to be any speeches. We're just going to pray. We're just going to cry out to God. We're going to have sol- um, solemn worship. We had police officers who came. We had uh, activists who came. And it's like, we're not going to argue. We're not going to talk about our position points. We're just going to cry out to God and say, we're at this moment in time in our country's history where we don't really know what to do. So we're going to launch this ministry. We're going to launch this conversation around the discipline of lament. And I keep saying the discipline of it because it's not a one-time thing. It's something that we need to come back to. It's just like quiet time and devotionals. Those are things we need to keep coming back to. And that's what scripture tells us to do. That's so good. I, I, as I'm hearing you talk, you know, something comes to mind. Um, I think that there are people who, who, you know, they made their declaration, you know, Hey, not me. That's not me. I'm not that way. Um, you know, they, they, they put up the, you know, the black box on, you know, Instagram and, you know, and, and, and they did all of those things and that's, that's, that's good. That's not, that's not a bad thing. Um, and, and it, but it ended there. Mm-hmm. And what's fascinating to me, and, and this is, this, this is something that I just think is important is that if you were allowed to do that, and to walk away from it and to never think of it again, that goes into this idea and this concept that's being written and talked about a lot right now of privilege. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of times that word comes off accusatory and we wanna look and say, well, wait a minute. Again, I'm not, I don't have privilege. I'm not that way. Um, I, I will admit, I'm, I remember having conversations saying, well, you don't know how I grew up. You don't know that, you know, I, I had all, a lot of these same problems and same things and same, you know, I, I had that. And yet, I grew up a, a white man in America and, and didn't have to think about race all the time. And there's privilege there. Yeah. And I wonder if there's a way for us to take some of the stigma away from um, the people who are listening, who are maybe offended by that term or who, or, or who feel accused by that term, I wonder if there's a way for us to help um, almost figure out, hey, that, 
what we've just described, you were able to post something and then walk away from it. But if your skin doesn't look, if you don't have white skin, if, then, then that's not actually a very easy thing to do. You are always confronted with race. You are always confronted with the color of your skin. And so what can you, what can you tell us for the person listening that's, that, that again is saying, I made my declaration. I, people know I'm not a racist. And, and yet they're kind of sitting in their comfort zones right now. What can you say to us to help us to kind of shake the dust a little bit and move out of our comfort zones? Yeah, there, there's a couple of things. I, the first thing is, is in scripture, it talks about if my brother is suffering, then I mm. should suffer with him. Mm. Um, and so there's just a general biblical principle of if I have advantages, if I have something that my brother doesn't have, um, then I'm to come alongside of my brother or sister and help them to either get what I have mm-hmm. or to, to let go of some of what I have so that they are not suffering. So there's just that New Testament biblical concept of just, I'm my brother's keeper. You know, in the Old Testament, it was, I'm my brother's keeper. In the New Testament, it is, uh, if someone in the body is hurting, if there's a part of the body that's hurting, then we are to go and minister and help that part of the body. So, so I always like to lay things out first from a biblical framework. So, so we have that biblical framework of what I'm supposed to do, both individually and collectively as the church. That's what we're supposed to do. And then the other thing is, is I, I think my training as a lawyer, so prior to, coming on staff at Fellowship, I practiced law for over 20 years. And, and, and a part of my training as a lawyer is, is being able to, to convince or put up an argument or raise an argument for others to understand a concept. And, and sometimes you have to use negatives to prove a positive, which is a really weird thing. And that's why I wasn't good in, in algebra. And so, um, so I always like to say, before we even get delved deep into a conversation about privilege, let me say what privilege is not, because you're right. In a lot of ways, it's been used in a way to put people on the defensive or people have just interpreted that way where they become defensive or they've just be, been become resistant to just that concept. And so privilege does not mean that every white person is wealthy. Privilege doesn't mean that every white person doesn't have problems. Privilege doesn't mean that you did not work hard for what you have personally. Privilege doesn't mean that all white people are racist. So I like to, those are like the four principles. Every time I do a training and we get into this conversation about privilege, Mm -hmm. that's the first slide that I put up is, here's what we're not talking about. We're not talking about everyone's wealthy because what about the poor white person? Mm -hmm. You know, and how do they wrestle with this notion of privilege when they say, hey, I'm poor, but there's people like Michael Jordan or Magic Johnson who are wealthy. How, how are they not privileged and, I, and I'm privileged? I don't understand that. So there has to be nuance in this conversation. That's good. And so you have to contextualize all of this stuff. And so I like to start with those four things of what privilege is not. Mm-hmm. Then I go into on balance. If you take a poor white person and a poor black person or a poor person of color on balance, that poor white person will have a, even if it's a small leg up, a leg up to that poor person of color. If you go to middle class, if you go to wealthy classes, so you have to look at privilege kind of from that context Mm. and not just from all white people are privileged and period with no nuance to it. So, so, so there's, that's part two. And then part three is 
to kind of address with with folks who are like they put up the 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 all black logo and they made a declaration on social media and then now they don't have to deal with it there that is a kind of privilege that that they have that i don't have because when i go out in public I know that before I open my mouth, I may be getting judged by those outside of me. Hmm. And it doesn't really matter how well, how positive I think of myself. It doesn't matter that I think I'm a really smart guy or a really good Christian. There are people who are really good Christians and who are really smart people who may look at me before I say one word and have a negative thought about me. Whereas, uh, so that when I go out in public, I have to worry about or be concerned about I got to make sure this person knows that I'm not this angry black guy. I got to make sure that this person knows that, that I know what I'm talking about. So I may over explain something uh, in, a, in an all white setting. I, made, I need to make sure that if I'm in a Christian setting, that they know that I believe in ABCD, whatever ABCD is, mm-hmm. so that I'm accepted into that group. Um, someone who is equally as intelligent, equally as everything else to me, but who is white, does not have to worry about that going into those spaces. They don't have to worry about that going to the store. They don't have to worry about being followed, which I have been followed. They don't have to be worried about being stopped by the police for no reason at all. Um, and just because I'm black. And so, so those are the, the small things that if you add them up, it adds up to this bigger thing of, of being privileged or, or not privileged. And I've even moved away from using the term privilege because it's such a, hot button topic. And so I use advantage and disadvantage. That's good. Um, I use benefit and, and non-benefit. And, so, and mm-hmm. so it kind of takes some of the sting out of it, but we're still going to talk about um, how that functions and operates in church, how it functions mm-hmm. and operates in law, which is an area that I was in, or in mm-hmm. any other institution in our country, race has some sort of component in it, no matter how fair and equitable we want to say that it is an example in church and so if you look at your bookshelf look at the authors that you're reading most of the authors for a lot of people are going to be white men and so they're not going to be uh african-american theologians or latinx theologians or asian-american theologians or female theologians most of the books are going to be written by white men it's not because there aren't a lot of African-American, Asian-American, or Latinx theologians. It's just that they don't get the opportunity and all the um, possibilities of publishing books uh, in the same way that a lot of white guys do. So, so those, there's an example, and there's the three points that I like to uh, kind of break down when I talk about this concept of privilege. So, John, one of the things that I, that I appreciate that about the work that you're doing and even in this conversation you've you've really been able to you know talk about this in a really good way and and it highlights that in order to be for something you don't have to be against something and i think that this idea of um of black lives matters um the concept of being anti-racist um, must mean that I am against the police or, or whatever political affiliation that someone has in order to have these thoughts and to, and to post this way to be a part of um, maybe a protest or a conversation. Or if I were to invite this into my church, it will be seen as though I am um, uh, of another political party or uh, that I am against another people group of some kind. 
and I think that's something that that would be important for us to um, to dispel that rumor while you and I are talking. Um, and so again, give us a little bit of context for for what does it mean to be for Black Lives? What does it mean to be um, you know? for these movements without that meaning that I'm against certain values that I have or political leanings that I have? Yeah, so let's start off with scripture first. And so um, I, I think it's in Peter where um, the writer is saying, put on the mind of Christ hmm. um, and, um, and push off and lay aside your own um, human intellectual mind. And so, so there's that passage where as we engage in these conversations, as we talk about Black Lives Matter or anti-racism or whatever the topic is that's connected to race, the um, request that I make of my fellow brothers and sisters is let's, let's step back a moment from our own um, political ideology on all of these things and kind of the things that we either have concluded or we, the people that we respect that they have concluded. So, so put on the mind of Christ. And then in Romans 12, it says, um, uh, let's not be conformed to this world's thinking, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Mm. One of the things that's always fascinating to me is we take that passage that said in every single Christian church, in every single evangelical church, we love Romans uh, 12, 1 and 2. But rarely do we give an analysis of Romans 12, 1 and 2 in connection with race. And so that means that that we are to uh, be not conformed to the way that race has been structured in our country historically, mm. but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, we need to look at both the Old Testament and New Testament where God talks about showing favoritism and not showing favoritism. Mm. All throughout the Old Testament, God had instructed the children of Israel, do not show favoritism. Well, that's racism. That's the biblical definition of racism, that we are not to show favoritism both individually and systemically. When, we, when Paul writes about going into a church and not allowing the person who's rich to have the best seat uh, in the church, that's favoritism. That's racism, if you put it in that context of race. And so, so, so first, I would encourage my brothers and sisters who are leaders to, to start to reframe how you're thinking about the issue of race. So do that first, and then as you talk about issues like Black Lives Matter or other um, things that you may agree with or disagree with, and kind of look at it from that lens. And so if we want to talk about Black Lives Matter, the thing that's so fascinating to me, that there's this strong critique right now on whether uh, Christians should support the organization Black Lives Matter. And what's fascinating to me is a lot of Christians don't have that same critique with the Democratic Party. They don't have the same critique with the Republican Party who have platforms. Both of those parties have platforms that are anti-Christ and anti-Bible. Mm -hmm. But we don't fight about that. We just kind of settled into I'm Democrat or I'm Republican and whatever their platform is, I'm still going to vote. I'm still going to engage in that process. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to issues of race, and so when we talk about Black Lives Matter, um, it's like, we can't be a part of any of it because they're anti-family. Well, let me tell you, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party is anti-family. When you look at their platforms and what they're trying to do with our country, they are anti-family. But we don't have that critique. That's part A. Again, the lawyer in me and the, and the professor in me 
kind of like categorizes it. these things. I love so it. That, Keep that's, it up. Part, that's part A. Part B is that theologically, there's a concept that's called common grace. And common grace basically says that to the extent that believers are, they can fight for things that, um, that the common man, the common uh, community can fight for as long as it aligns with, uh, with scripture. And so we can engage in protests. We can engage in all these other types of movements so long as there's some parts of it that's going to help humanity and that's biblical. And so the notion that I'm going to be against Black Lives Matter because I have a problem with two or three of their, of their platform points, um, I think for some it's just being disingenuous, if I'm going to be really honest, yeah. because they don't give that critique. And, and they're, try, they're trying to parse things out and they're trying to give an excuse to not be engaged in something that is really critical, which is the looking at black period, lives period, matter period, not only, but also. And so um, we wanna make sure that, no, that the whole notion of black lives matter is about being supportive of black lives and fighting for changes in systems and policies that are going to alleviate the pain that this particular community is feeling uh, on a daily basis. And so, um, so it's just really critical for us to, again, put on the mind of Christ, not show favoritism, um, and not be conformed to this world. So there's a biblical basis for supporting Black lives, even if you disagree with the organization Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's important to separate those two. The, the concept and the organization uh, are, are not the, they're, they're not the same thing. And again, just to, to, to continue to put the exclamation point on it, um, to be for something doesn't mean that you have to be against all these other things. Right. And I think that that's so important for us to remember because what I'm, what I'm seeing happening within many of our churches is that, is that leaders are afraid of that both at, in themselves, you know, they're, they're wrestling and warring with, can I be for this? Cause it seems like if I'm for it, then I'm against these other things. And also they're afraid of how they'll be perceived. So even if they've worked on it for themselves and they realize that that is a true statement, there is the danger and the fear of the perception of their congregation that if I were to use this hashtag, if I were to put up the black square, if I were to say something that is, that is, for protests or, or for this movement moving forward that, that I must be fill in the blank with whatever their fear is. Right. And I think that it's going to be incredibly important for our listeners to be able to sit in the tension. It is, there's a tension and to sit in the tension of that and to realize that as leaders, it, it actually is our job to move people forward. And you have people in your congregation that that they might have that very rudimentary idea. And it is our job to elevate these ideas and to move them forward, not let them just stay where they are, but be people who spur them on. And I think that's something that as I'm watching churches, I'm seeing some do it. And I'm also seeing some do it and pay the price. Yep. They're getting backlash from their own congregations. Um, and I'm seeing some handle that really well. And I'm seeing some handle that rather poorly. And I think that it's going to be important for us as the church in America to, to really lean into this and to not allow that to be a one-time conversation or a conversation we're so afraid of that we shy away from it entirely. 
Right, right. And I, and I think that you, you said that so well, David, and I appreciate that. Um, I think the other thing is, is to drill down even more, not just the church in America, but um, the leaders of these churches. Mm -hmm. God calls us to preach the gospel in season and out of season, to be mm -hmm. truth tellers in season and out of season. That in season and out of season is whether your congregation agrees with it or not, you are to tell the truth. And mm -hmm. so, yes, you're going to get backlash. Jesus said that we would suffer. And yeah. this is part of the suffering for telling the truth. And, mm -hmm. and if they don't want to talk about that phrase or that organization, Black Lives Matter, we can zoom out and ask sure. a, more, a more piercing question. What is your congregation or how are you leading your congregation to actually help Black lives? If you have a problem Good. with just saying it, what are you actually doing when you don't have to say it? Because mm -hmm. our actions can speak louder than our words. If you don't want to ever say Black Lives Matter, I'm cool with that if you're actually doing things to help Black lives or marginalized lives. So you don't have to ever say it. Show me through your actions that you believe that Black Lives Matter. I love it. So good. Um, there is inevitably someone listening to this conversation right now. And they're resonating with the conversation. They just don't know what to do next. Can you point us towards some resources that we can be engaging with? Absolutely, absolutely. There, there, um, I always say, let's start with kind of educating ourselves. And so there's some good, uh, really solid books that I think that can be very helpful. One is one that I mentioned earlier in our conversation, written by Michael Emerson, Divided by Faith. Uh, that is a great book um, to start the conversation with. A second, uh, second book is Roadmap to Reconciliation 2.0, which is written by Brenda, um, uh, Brenda Salter McNeil, um, is, is a really good book. Um, so so there's, there's ways that you can start just there. There's also um, uh, Arabon, A-R-R-O, B-O-N uh, by David Bailey. He's, he's a uh, minister, African-American minister on the East Coast in Virginia, I believe. He has a series that's really, really good that, that churches can go through that talk mm -hmm. about, it's almost like racism 101 in the Bible. Um, mm -hmm. He does such a great job of just kind of breaking it down in bite-sized chunks. That's really helpful. Uh, Tasha Morrison, Be the Bridge, mm -hmm. is another great organization and ministry that you can be a part of. And, and for also uh, the Center for Racial Rec, this fall we're going to be relaunching our table talks, which is kind of virtual tables around uh, some of these books that I mentioned, as well as just conversations. Some of those tables are for all white folks, for people of color. Some of them are, are blended together. Uh, that's a great thing. And then we're gonna be doing our trainings in the fall online. So people will be able to uh, jump on the, um, the website made for, made for Fellowship and go on our Racial Rec page. And we will have opportunities for people to get engaged through the Center for Racial Reconciliation. That's good. John, I really appreciate you being with us today. Uh, how can people get connected to you? I mean, you, you just gave the website for the center. But, you know, where can we find you online? Um, I know I'll plug it before it even exists. And I'm going to speak it into existence that John will be starting a podcast. Yes. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I will be one of the people that links to that podcast when it's out. And so we'll help people get. But where can people find you so they can get more information? 
Absolutely. So you can find me on Instagram at profjdub. That's P-R-O-F-J-A-Y-D-U-B. Um, I post a lot of uh, the things for our Center for Racial Reconciliation on Instagram, which is called Made for Reconciliation. You can also connect with me on Facebook through John Marshall Williams Jr. But we also have a page on Facebook, a private page, where we get to engage in, uh, in these conversations in a safer way. And that is the Center uh, Fellowship Center for Racial Reconciliation. Uh, that's the other place that you can reach me uh, directly. And you can just contact me through our website and um, I'm open to talk to whoever. Uh, I've been really busy this season in talking to oh, sure. a lot of white pastors and white church leaders and asking uh, these kinds of questions. And I'm always up for a virtual cup of coffee and a conversation. So good. Church, let, let's lean in to this conversation even more than we are now. Uh, let's not allow this incredibly important conversation um, to fade back into the background. Let's harness the momentum that we have right now where it is at the forefront. And let's continue to ride this wave and be people who bring about reconciliation. Uh, John, thanks again. Uh, I really appreciate you, man. Thank you, David, for having me. This was a lot of fun. Wow, what a compelling conversation. Keith Robinson here with my co-host, David Miller. Hello. And Brian Taylor. Hey there. Guys, this was such an incredible interview with John Williams, and there's so much good stuff to unpack. And David, I want to throw to you because you had this opportunity to sit down with John, to have this conversation. And I loved how you started it with the question of, for the pastor who's maybe feeling backlash for saying something about racial injustice, Hmm. what should they know? And David, why don't you take a moment and just begin to unpack this conversation that you had with John. It was so compelling and there's so much good stuff here to talk about. Yeah, man, I'll be honest. I I could have sat and talked with him for hours. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's uh, we've had multiple conversations after that interview. um, And, you know, he's he's talking about starting his own podcast and I I can't encourage him enough to do that. He is just a wealth of information because he's not um, it's 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 he's not just living it. He's he's training in the midst of it. He's creating systems to help people understand uh, racial reconciliation. I mean that like what a beautiful beautiful person. Um, yeah, man. In in the beginning of our time together, you know that I, I just had a few conversations with leaders who, um, you know, a couple who would say, "Man, I, I I would like to say something, but I'm really nervous because it's become political to say yeah. something." Mm-hmm. Um, I, I talked to a few others who have said something, um, you know, there are some pretty well-known cases right now out there of, of leaders who have, who have somehow spoken up and their, their churches said, um, you know, you're, you're becoming too political. You're becoming, um, too invested in this idea. And so even some who, who have lost their jobs over it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, man, I, I wanted to really lean into something that feels so, divisive right now and yet should be so unifying Mm. and 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 i figured talking with john was the right way to start that conversation of just saying hey there's someone listening right now and they've said something and they're feeling the heat or they want to say something or or they're not sure what 
to do. They're just watching to see what, you know, what the next step should be as a leader. What do you say to them? And I, and I love that he was able to go into some really beautiful and, and applicable next steps to that. Yeah. My, my favorite, uh, my, one of my favorite points of the interview is what I actually, you know, have been experiencing. I've navigated this conversation myself is, you know, so much is lost in translation, the language, the, the importance of having common language that we're at basic level saying the same things I think would go uh, to clear up so much of the confusion and even maybe some of the hostility because people bring their own references and preferences into conversation. I love, you know, we have to have that common language to have effective conversations for us to actually listen to understand, not listen to defend. Um, I think just even that point, uh, I think would quiet so much of the chaos around this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I appreciated so much about the, the interview with John is he did such an amazing job at giving us common language because language is often the barrier on how to really get at the heart of what's happening here. And Mm -hmm. And if you'll remember from the interview, he talked about the fact that, that racism is really a two-headed monster, mm-hmm. that it is both individual and systemic. And, you know, as someone who can hear other people who are white say something like, I'm not a racist, mm-hmm. I've never mm-hmm. experienced racism, I didn't own slaves, my grandparents didn't own slaves, I think that what John did is he was able to take this issue of racism and the word racism and address it for the two-headed monster that it is, that it's not just an individual experience, but instead it is an experience, a collective experience of many. And that systemic racism is what John said, a shapeshifter. And the way it shows up in culture and in society changes from era to era. And so if we go back hundreds of years, of course we see overt racism, but through the years, and I love how John kind of unpacked the various movements from slavery to Jim Crow to the civil rights era, and pointing out that the manifestation of racism in the systemic, you know, uh, systems and, and, uh, you know, whether that's in government or education or housing, it was a beautiful picture of how we can open our eyes and see beyond ourselves and our own experience and begin to look with empathy upon a, a group of people who have experienced both overt and even more subtle forms of systemic racism that are very real in our, in our culture and our society even today. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that um, I think that if more leaders, you know, we, we talk a lot about empathy as as leaders, as we do a lot of our training, and and man, it is it is so difficult to put yourself in the shoes of someone that has lived a life that looks absolutely nothing like yours. And I think that with most leadership topics, we're able to pull from so much personal experience and say, oh yeah, like I had a coach who really helped me with this. I had a mentor. Oh, I had this hard season in my family. Oh, I had yeah. a season where I was being rebellious. Or I mean, we, we, we pull from, I mean, almost every sermon you hear has some personal anecdote or story that, that is attached to it to make the point for others to live into. 
I think that we like to live in a way where we can actually just be vulnerable and say, man, I have no idea what it's like to be black in America. Mm-hmm. I, I have no idea what it's like to be a woman in America. Mm-hmm. Like, I have no idea what it is like other than the stories that I hear, that the, the people that I know, but as a personal, as, me being able to put myself in that place, I have no idea what that's like. And to, to sit in and to lean in and to say, well, then let's just learn from and hear from others that do know what that's like. And what I'm finding is uh, that, that that becomes such a, um, a threat to so many. Mm. Like you said, Keith, I, I, I didn't do that, right? right? I didn't intentionally do this thing that someone was offended by. Mm-hmm. And, and that feels like then the conversation should be over because I didn't mean it that way. Mm-hmm. Or I didn't, I, mean, I didn't set up the system that causes me to have an easier time than somebody else. Right. That's not my fault. And people believe right now there's this, there's this defensive nature, this posture that says, um, because I didn't mean it that way or I didn't set this up, but I do benefit from it, that I should, um, that I need to defend myself rather than listen and lean in and take the information and, and, and honestly figure out what is real and what is not and how does that function in this context. That, that's yeah. what we're supposed to do in, in whenever anything difficult is happening. And yet we have a, a, a group of people in our country right now that are saying, this is really hard. Yeah. Like really hard things are happening and, yeah. and they're not happening to you. They're happening to me. And rather than lean in and say, and say, I want to listen and understand that more, we're saying, mm, I don't know if I believe that because it's never been my story. Yeah. It, it's almost as if, because I didn't experience it, it's not happening. Yeah. Brian, I, I'm, I'm interested, you know, in, as, as you lean into this conversation with us, um, you know, wh- what are you hearing, man? What, is, what does that do? And how can we, how can the average listener that's sitting and listening to this episode um, lean into this conversation in a new way. Yeah. You know, there, there are a number of things and I think this comp, just having this conversation is encouraging and helpful. And I think for people to realize, um, and I don't, I don't want to assume that everyone listening knows what I look like. So my dad is black. My mom is white. I grew up, uh, you know, raised by my black grandparents who were, uh, you know, they, they lived in Jim Crow era in Washington, D.C. So like right in the middle of, of everything uh, that was going on with the civil rights movement there. And so that's a lot of my reference uh, growing up. But I, I think for people to understand, number one, that the media is not our friend in this, just like mm-hmm. every other issue, they pick the extremes. And if we only go with headlines, we only go with sound bites, we miss the story. We miss the person that's behind the politics or the preference or, or the reference. And I think uh, for those listening, I would say, you know, it's important for us to get outside of our bubble and, and ask, you know, I wonder if, you remember those, those questions that yeah. we encourage people like, this is a, I wonder if, like, I wonder if this could be true. Mm-hmm. I wonder what it would look like if I was in that, you know, if I was in that position. And it's not just the extremes that you see in the headlines. And, you know, so we, we have to get beyond beyond politicizing what is a very real personal issue and be willing to say, maybe I don't know. And maybe it's worth me just 
sitting and and maybe the conversation needs to be a little one-sided for some people you know maybe they're used to being broadcasters and maybe they need to take the time to listen uh, to understand to listen to see uh, with different eyes and and a different perspective i think that's huge you um you know the way that you the way that you were that i remember uh, having a conversation with carlos whitaker and, and him saying, you know, what if it's not the headline, but what if you just took the time to actually know someone that didn't yeah. look like you and have a conversation with them? What, what if this was a person, not an yeah. issue? What if yeah. this was an individual that you love and care about? Would you then, the way that we do on social media, would you just, would you, would you just comment, uh, that's a lie or this <laughs> isn't true? If, it was, if they're sitting right in front of you, would it be different in the way that you hear these stories? Yeah. And you know, I've, I've heard the, um, the response to this from some that says, well, what does this have to do with the gospel? But you know, you can hardly read the new Testament and the work and ministry of Jesus without seeing the racial tension, just mm -hmm. jumping off the page at you. And when mm -hmm. Brian, when you're talking about individual stories and, and not the headlines, but the people who have experienced it, you know, I'm reminded of, of Jesus and the woman at the well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, he says, I have to go through Samaria. Samaria. And just that statement alone, Jesus chose to wade into the unfamiliar and the scary territory of racial tension in his culture. He just, he went for it. Mm -hmm. and, and if you know any of the backstory to, you, to that, you know that there was a lot of infighting and racial tension among Samaritans and Jews. In fact, the whole Roman government was to, you know, was commissioned to come in and to provide peace and order and, and rule. And of course, they did that through a heavy hand. But Jesus responds beautifully to this woman and to this story. And, and that's the thing he does. He stops, he listens, and he responds relationally first. Then he responds with an eternal perspective. And he says, I have water to drink that you don't even know of. And so he, he points to eternity, to an eternal perspective. And if we're not careful, it's easy to get caught up in the values of our culture and our society and miss what God is doing eternally. And Jesus also in that moment, he didn't bring more hurt. He didn't pour salt on the wound. Instead, he brought healing yeah. to this woman. And I think as the church, it's our job to wade into the unfamiliar and the scary territory of racial tensions in our culture as well. Yeah, I mean, that, that reminds me of one of the points that you guys talked about, that it's okay to lament lamentable things. Like, mm -hmm. lament is not political. Lament is, is, is grief over the pain that you're witnessing. It's compassion. It's stepping into the story. And that's exactly... Man, that's so good. It's exactly what Jesus did. Every you look at the scriptures, he's moved with compassion by the suffering of the people he encounters, and he he sits with them in that, uh, and then brings healing and restoration and compassion. and And uh, I loved I loved when you guys chatted about that, David, because I think again, our ability to lament it it, it kind of raises the the conversation above preference and reference. And it just says, you know what, this is a person, this is a real person and a real story in front of me. Yeah, I, I actually think that as leaders, we've lost the ability to lament. Hmm. I mean, hmm. even beyond, um, you know, racial reconciliation and, and, and these difficult conversations that we're in, I think that we've lost it in general. We've been taught that leaders are always supposed to come in with the answer. Mm -hmm. And so people, 
don't want to say anything until they have the answer to whatever the ethereal question wow. is, whether That's it's cool. around racial tension, whether it's around um, loss of some kind, whether it's around any, I mean, just name the, the, the issue that is difficult, right? Um, yeah. I, I remember, I remember being a youth pastor and you know what, one of the most difficult things to do as a youth pastor is to do a funeral for a student who died. Mm-hmm. That's one of the most difficult things I've ever done. I mean, it, I remember, I remember people coming to me and asking me all of these questions that I didn't have answers to. And, and as the 21 year old youth pastor, man, I felt like I was an absolute failure because I didn't have the correct answer to give them everything they needed to move forward with a smile after something really difficult. And and now um, being a little more of a seasoned leader, being able to lean in and say, say, you know what? Uh, The answer isn't actually what we're looking for right now. What we're looking for is just to be together and lament as one. What we're looking for is is an opportunity just to be sad and and to sit in our grief of whatever that is. Mm -hmm. And to me, leaders today we need to we need to relearn this as a skill we -hmm. need to uh to release the need to have the correct quote or answer and Mm -hmm. lean into the idea that not having it is just fine yeah and that Mm -hmm. we can lament together when difficult things happen as individuals as a congregation as a nation as i mean you name it and that yeah. to me, as I, was, as I was talking with John, and he tells the story of Fellowship Monrovia um, and, and some of the first killings that happened, um, that they just sat together and wept. That they didn't come out with some major uh, next agenda as to how they were going to respond. They invited their community to sit. Yeah. And that to me, man, if, if, if in, especially with this issue, but even beyond, if we could learn that as leaders again, we would be far more equipped for the realities of the world that we're in, especially the 2020 world that we're in. We would be far more equipped to Mm -hmm. to lean in to those moments. Yeah, that's good. So good. Well, hey everyone, and welcome to that part of the episode that we are calling Improv Leadership Moments. You see, leadership is not just a series of tasks that we're responsible for doing. It's an art that involves our imagination. It requires innovation. It demands emotional engagement. And yes, at times, improvisation. And only the best leaders can improv. At Slingshot Group, our co-founder and chief culture officer, Stan Endicott, along with our vice president of coaching, David Miller, Develop the improv leadership coaching model to help leaders build trust, encourage risk-taking, increase collaboration, and promote creativity, which in turn will move people toward being more committed to their roles and performance. Improv leadership is based on five leadership competencies that leaders can develop to initiate powerful conversations and create memorable, life-changing moments for their teams. So without further delay, let's jump into today's improv leadership moment. What we're talking about is, you know, in story mining, there are two core tools that we've developed. One is this master list of questions that, um, that we kind of talked through. What does it mean to be a curator of questions? What would it look like if you asked the right question at the right time? Mm-hmm. 
And so Stan, I think you're, you know, one of the best that I've ever seen at, at knowing uh, the right question at the right time. What a lot of people don't understand about asking questions is most people who ask questions aren't really that interested in the answer. If you're not interested in the answer that they're, that they're about to give, they can smell it and they know it right away. Yeah. Uh, and to practice this, you practice it on kids. I practice it on my grandkids all the time. What happens is, is once you ask the question and you are keenly interested in their answer and they can tell if you are or not, they begin to talk. And you guys who are with me very much know that my way of doing life is talking 30% and listening 70%. So great questions is like turning on the faucet of gold that comes from people, but you have to be keenly interested. So, so talk a little bit about um, competency itself of story mining that we call the six sketch storyboard, where you're encouraging someone, you ask a, a, a overarching question, and they find six things to sketch out and, and, and talk about in that moment. Mm-hmm. How you use story mining or maybe a story um, yep. about how you've used it well. When I first was talking to David and Will Mancini about in our first meetings together of our collaborating about this concept, I, I would tell people, give me a list of 20 things in your life that have impacted you the most. And uh, by the way, the most formative year of a kid's life is in the fourth grade. When you're in the fourth grade is when somebody said, will you do, read your book report to the school? Will you sing a solo? Will you... Uh, do the Pledge of Allegiance? Will you, if you're in a Christian school, will you have our opening prayer? Dear God. <laughs> so it's like when we're 10 or 11, 12 years old is when we are psychologically, emotionally, and mentally capable of being impacted by somebody. And that's when this stuff starts. So you go all the way back to grade school and you start thinking, okay, my, like for me, it was my seventh grade teacher, mm-hmm. Charlie Crane. He, he was like... He changed my life. And then going a little bit further, my dad had great influence on me. He was 98. He passed away uh, about three months ago. I can talk for a week about my dad. But what are the 20 things? And Will Mancini and David, it's partly your fault too, David. Thank you. I'll take the blame. Yeah. Is that they said you can't do that many. You can only do six. Hmm. The story mining, we find six things in your life that you... It could be the way you were raised. It could be a youth pastor in your life. It could be a teacher, whatever. But what are those six things? And then they have to draw them out. And that's part of the beauty of this is they actually have to draw it out. And I'd say 90% of the time that I do this, you can hear violins play and people start crying. But being keenly interested in the other person is what coaching is all about. Well, thank you for joining us for today's episode of the Slingshot Group podcast. We hope that you've been encouraged by the content and found these conversations meaningful. The best way to stay informed about the Slingshot Group podcast is by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'd love your feedback. 
Also, be sure to visit us at singshotgroup.org to find out more about how we build remarkable teams through staffing and coaching. That's all the time we have for today. Until next time. Oh, 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 oh,